Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active word of God, his two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, June 30th, we're studying Jeremiah chapter 26, verses 1 to 24. Jeremiah falls under the threat of death due to his faithful preaching of the word of God concerning the destruction of Jerusalem. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor David Vandercook. Pastor Vandercook serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and Shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumel, Arkansas. Pastor Vandercook, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Good to be here again. Let's talk context to get started. Jeremiah actually tells us some of that context at the outset. He says in verse 1 that this is the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. So with those opening words there in verse 1, Pastor Vandercook, what's the context we need to know for this text? Well, Josiah is a, is a significant king in the history of Judah. Uh, he is his father was not a good king, neither was his grandfather. In fact, his grandfather was one of the worst kings of uh, Judah. That was Manasseh. Uh, and then Manasseh's son was uh, Ammon. And then uh, you finally get to Josiah. And this is all in Second Kings uh, 21, 22, 23, 24 in there. Uh, and Josiah was, uh, was a very good king. In fact, by the time you get to the end of his reign, uh, it says before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might. Um, he restored uh, proper worship to uh, Yahweh during his reign uh, and even had some of this effect on what is what used to be the northern kingdom. By this time, the northern kingdom of Israel had been uh, uh, defeated by Assyria. Uh, and so he even had some effect there where he tore down some of the high places that had been built over the, uh, over the years to, um, to false gods. Uh, he, uh, cleaned up the temple. Uh, he, um, reestablished the, the regular practice of all the festivals the Jews were supposed to celebrate Passover, et cetera, all those types of things. Uh, and all this came because they discovered the book of the law, and it actually led to reforms, which shows that uh, the word of God is is powerful, can even bring about repentance uh, after years. And it was kind of one of those things where uh, the people, uh, Josiah among them, just had not heard the word of the Lord in so long. And suddenly it brings about all this reform, which is good. So Josiah was uh, a fantastic king, but he was unfortunately killed in battle. Uh, by Pharaoh Necho, and his son, Josiah's son Jehoahaz, was made king, uh, and as um, it says in Second Kings, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and in just three months, basically undid pretty much all of the good that his father had done, and his father reigned for um, uh, a good period of time, uh, for 31 years. And so you get all of that work that's done by Josiah over a period of years, completely undone by his son, pretty much. Um, and, uh, and then, uh, so you have, uh, uh, Jehoiaz on the, uh, 
uh, on the on the throne. Well, he is captured by the Pharaoh, and then his brother Jehoiakim, that finally gets us to the king that's on the throne when Jeremiah is prophesying here. Uh, Jehoiakim is put uh, into his place. Uh, and uh, Jehoiakim um, was an evil king too. Uh, Pharaoh Necho forced him to pay a tax, a very heavy tax, uh, and um, and that was in exchange for kind of this agreement that he had uh, with Egypt, which uh, was basically subjugating uh, Israel to Egypt uh, once again. And uh, he, in in turn, passed this tax on to the people. Uh, and so uh, not a good king, not good to the people, and, and certainly not uh, faithful to the Lord. And so that's the situation that Jeremiah comes into and that Jeremiah uh, preaches to in this in this particular text. So three months after King Josiah has died, one king has been in place for a very short time, Jehoiaz, and now you get Jehoiakim. It's the beginning of his reign. That's the situation in which Jeremiah is preaching. A lot of what we will hear today in chapter 26 is going to sound familiar. There's a part in chapter 7 of Jeremiah that has some very similar preaching of Jeremiah, particularly about the temple in the first part. But we're going to see some of the reaction now of the people to that and the officials and various groups within Judah and how they respond to Jeremiah's preaching. So there's plenty to look at in our text today. We're going to pick up with the first couple verses here in Jeremiah 26. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah that come to worship in the house of the Lord, all the words that I command you to speak to them. Do not hold back a word. It may be that they will listen and every one turn from his evil way that I may relent of the disaster that I intend to do to them because of their evil deeds. You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, if you will not listen to me to walk in my law that I have set before you and to listen to the words of my servants, the prophets whom I send you urgently, though you have not listened, then I will make this house like Shiloh and I will make this city a curse for all the nations of the earth. That's through verse six of the chapter. That's Jeremiah's sermon. Pastor Vandercook, there's several things we can talk about here. First, let's let's talk about the setting. In verse 2, the Lord sends Jeremiah to the temple. To That's where the problem is happening, so that's where the Lord sends him. And what does the Lord have to say through Jeremiah there in the temple? Yeah, well, the Lord wants the people to repent. He wants the people to return uh, to him, to return to right worship of him. Um and, and he makes it clear to Jeremiah that he's not to omit uh, a single word of what he's telling Jeremiah to preach. Uh, it's possible that Jeremiah's sermon was even lengthier than this, uh, you know, but this is what, what's actually been recorded for us here. But uh, there would certainly be a temptation for Jeremiah to leave some stuff out uh, because his message is not going to be a popular one. Uh, and he certainly knows that going into this. It's obviously the truth. It's God's word. God revealed it directly to him. But there is that temptation there, I'm sure, for Jeremiah to, to leave a little bit out. Uh, you know, even as, uh, uh, you know, as pastors, we're, we're given tasks sometimes to preach on popular messages. And, you know, for example, if you have a congregation full of uh, people who are 
who have gone through divorce or something like that, and, and you're tasked with, because the text for the day tells you that you're tasked with it, to preach about divorce, that's not an easy thing to uh, preach about. I mean, we come up with numerous other examples of that. And so there's always that temptation to kind of soften it a little bit. Uh, and uh, Jeremiah is, is told by the Lord explicitly here, hey, don't, don't do that. You, you need to preach the word uh, explicitly here uh, of what I've I've told you to do. I think that that temptation, as you said, is certainly there for Jeremiah and certainly there for us still today that if we, you know, we think, well, yes, Jesus said, teach everything that I've commanded you, hold on to all of it. And yet there's those, those parts that you know, or you're pretty sure that they're going to hit your hearers in a way that's going to maybe turn them off. And so you say, well, Maybe I'll hold back that for a second, or I'll, I'll I'll wait on that. And here the Lord is very explicit: don't do that. Don't hold back a word. A- an important thing for us, lest we fall into you know, well, we're gonna just say the things that we think people are gonna like to hear, or if we try maybe some kind of bait and switch, we're gonna not say that right now and and try to get them in the door first, and then hit them with it later, as if. I mean, there's, there's a variety of ways around it, I suppose. And the Lord says, don't do that. <laughs> don't hold back a word. Well, and in particular, there's, there's also just this, this warning that goes out for uh, prophets and, uh, and you can extend it to pastors and preachers, of course, too, and that they're responsible for the souls of the people that are entrusted to them. Um, you know, Ezekiel is given that, uh, that warning by, uh, Yahweh in Ezekiel chapter three, where the Lord says that He's made him a, a watchtower over Israel, and that uh, you know if you if you preach to the people and they repent, that's great. Uh, if you preach to or how does it go? If you preach to the people that uh, um, uh, if you hold back on the message, uh, then it, basically it's your fault. If you preach the truth and the people don't repent, that's not your fault. <laughs> So, you know, it's uh, it's but but the 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 preacher, the the prophet is responsible for um, uh, what the people hear. Uh, And so if they're not hearing the the truth, if they're not hearing the word, then that's on the prophet's head. Uh, It's not on the people. Hmm. I mean, maybe a good example of this, and I've mentioned this previously in this series, is the the month of June is being celebrated by many people in our world today as so-called Pride Month. That, that we would be somehow proud of sins against God's gift of marriage. And maybe there's a temptation among some Christians to say, well, we're going to hold off preaching the sixth commandment this month. We're not going to talk about committing adultery right now because that's not what the world wants to hear. And words like Jeremiah has given here, don't hold back a word, I think would speak very strongly to that temptation right now, particularly. That's just one example. Sure. Yeah, I can certainly see that too. That would be uh, an an unpopular message. Yeah. <laughs> right. But but right now that word is needed. Do not hold back a word. It is. And and I think I mean this is what's what's amazing. You know how the Lord then follows up with that. Don't hold back a word. Why? Because it might be they'll listen. You know that that's the word of God. They need to hear it. And the whole reason He gives that word is so that people will listen. And just the the progression here is is fantastic. God gives His word not to be held back, so that people might listen, turn from their evil, and then He's going to relent of the disaster. I mean, that's the whole reason that God gives the preaching of the law is to let those dominoes fall because He wants to be merciful to His people. And I mean, I think you know if we stop the process at the very beginning and don't speak the word, 
then, I mean, that's the whole point that God gave the word in the in the first place is ultimately to show mercy through the repentance that's brought about. Well, yeah, and we have examples of that in the scriptures already uh, of the Lord doing that. Uh, you know, that's what happens at Nineveh when Jonah preaches. Uh, you know, that the Lord has Jonah preach that word, and the expectation of Jonah is that these people aren't going to listen. Uh, and they do, and they repent, and the Lord does not bring the disaster that he had planned to bring upon the people of Nineveh. Uh, or you can go back to King Hezekiah, um, you know, before going back earlier than, uh, than even King Josiah and King Hezekiah, uh, because of his faithfulness, the Lord uh, relents from destroying Jerusalem at that time uh, and tells him, I'm not going to do it during your reign, basically. You know, it's going to, it's going to come at a later date. Uh, so we have certainly examples of, of the Lord, um, holding back his anger. You could even go back to uh, uh, Exodus where Moses pleads for the people and, uh, and the Lord um, uh, decides not to destroy them either. So uh, there's certainly plenty of examples where the Lord, um, uh, his word works on the, on the people uh, and it brings about the repentance he desires. And so, yeah, if we don't even preach that word or if Jeremiah doesn't preach that word, it's not going to, it doesn't even have a chance. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, Jonah is, is a, a great example. And the whole reason Jonah didn't really want to go preach in the beginning uh, is apparently he knew that that's what was going to happen. <laughs> he, he knew that the yeah. Lord's word worked and he didn't want the people of Nineveh to to repent. And so he, he didn't want to preach for that reason. So, I mean, Jonah, I think is a, a fantastic example of that precisely for that reason. He, he knew what could and probably would happen he didn't want that to happen. And that's, of course, a different right. conversation. But just I think it does go to illustrate this this point that God gives his word to be preached so that it will bring about repentance and faith when and where he pleases. We we obviously don't have control over that, but he gives us the word to preach so that that can and will happen in the world. Right. So, Pastor Vandercook, then the that's the word to Jeremiah. Don't hold back a word because this is what I want to happen. Then he says, say this to them. That's beginning in verse four. So what is the actual sermon that Jeremiah has given to preach to the people? Yeah, uh, well, if you don't listen to me, if you don't walk in my law, then uh, you're going to be destroyed. Uh, and he gives them the, the comparison of... Uh, what happened at Shiloh, uh, and that's a reference that goes back quite a ways into the history of of God's people, uh, all the way back during the time of the judges, where you had um, Eli, who is uh, the the priest at the time, uh, and and also judge for that matter. Uh, he and his sons are the ones who are taking care of things at the tabernacle at that time. Hophni and Phineas. Hophni and Phineas were Eli's sons, and they were. Uh, very evil. Um, and the people of Israel are going to battle against the Philistines, and they decide uh, as they're struggling in the battle that if they can bring the Ark of the Covenant into the battle, uh, then the Ark will save them. Uh, and I noticed that as I was reading this earlier, that uh, the people way back in that in that instance, it's in First uh, uh, Samuel, um, they did not, um, they didn't say that maybe the Lord will save us if we bring the Ark of the Covenant into the battle. It was maybe the Ark will save us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's this faith that's being placed in this object. Now, God had given them the Ark of the Covenant as a, a sign and symbol of his presence among them. Uh, and he'd given them the tabernacle as a place to house that Ark. And they had put all of their trust into the object rather than the giver of the object. And so because of that, uh, the Lord 
allowed them to be defeated there at, uh, that day, and, and Shiloh was decimated. Uh, the tabernacle was destroyed. The Ark of the Covenant was taken away. Now, as, as, it, as the Philistines find out, they, they took the Ark of the Covenant, and bad things happened to the Philistines because of that. But that's, that's neither here nor there for this, this particular in, uh, instance. But, uh, but the fact is that what the people in Jeremiah's day are doing with Jerusalem and the temple is basically the same thing they were doing with the Ark of the Covenant uh, and the tabernacle in Shiloh back then. And it was, uh, hey, nothing bad can happen to us because we got Jerusalem. You know, there's no faith in uh, the one who gives his gifts at these places. Uh, it's all faith in, in objects. They've turned it into a superstition, into an idol. Um, and so, uh, the, and, and, you know, along with that, they have completely disregarded the law of God in general. Where, where would we see something like that today, where we take something that God has given, but place our faith in just the object or the outward thing rather than say the word that God has, has put there. Well, I think certainly you can look uh, sometimes as at, uh, you know, within the church, perhaps sometimes we, we get that way with some of the objects we have uh, in the church, even like the furnishings that are in the church, you know, that they are uh, that, that nothing bad can happen to us in the church building or something like that. Um, and, you know, we put our faith into the stuff rather than the God who serves us there. Or this, I had this passing thought earlier today, too, and it was the idea of um, prayer. And people often talk about the power of prayer. Uh, well, prayer is, is, prayer is only powerful if you're praying to the right person. Uh, if you're, you know, it's, it's not really the prayer that's powerful. It's the one who answers the prayer that's powerful. Uh, you know, it's not... Uh, it's not the water. Oh, you know, I had this time, one time when I was uh, serving at a previous parish, um, I was teaching a Bible class, I remember, and somebody came in, uh, and it was somebody just off the street that walked in the door while I was teaching this class, and they asked if I could um, bless some of this water for them so that they could uh, take it home and they could, you know, it, was, it would make it holy water so they could splash it on their house or something like that because they were having some, um, I don't know what was going on exactly, but um, but that made me think of, of, of baptism and how the water of baptism is nothing without the word of God. Uh, the same thing with the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is nothing without the word of God. It's only bread and wine. Uh, and so those things are just things. It's the God who works through those things and with those things through his word that's actually doing that. I feel like I'm rambling a little bit, but, uh, you know, I think that the the fact that it's it's the God that works through the things that is powerful, not the things themselves. Right. I mean, I think that's that's the key. All of those, you know, the water of baptism obviously is important. You need the water of baptism. But if you separate the water from the word, then, you know, as Luther reminds us in the catechism, all you have is water. And and to the, what you're saying about the power of prayer, certainly prayer is a good gift from God. When we are in need, we should cry out to him for help. But if we make it more about the prayer for example, if we think that if I get enough people praying for me, that you know I have enough people engaged in the the act of prayer, that somehow that's going to force God's hand, or if I I use exactly the right formula, then I can force God's hand. Those are perhaps some ways where we begin to to make a similar shift to what the people of Judah were doing 
with the temple in the days of Jeremiah and what they did with the ark in the days of the, the closing days of the judges, that it just becomes about that almost a magical object of sorts that we can say the right words, do the right things, and suddenly God's on our side rather than trusting in the God who's already told us he's on our side. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. That, that brings clarity. <laughs> That's kind of exactly what I was trying to express in all those ramblings. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Our iron sharpens iron. That's what we're doing here. So yeah. <laughs> Pastor Vandercook, the, the way that this section of the text closes is that the consequences, I'll make this house like Shiloh's, as you've already explained to us, going back to first Samuel four, and then I'll make this city a curse for all the nations of the earth. What's that last phrase? Well, yeah, again, the, um, uh, Jerusalem was a blessing uh, for, for God's people because, again, it's the place where he comes to meet them. It's the place where they gather together to receive his gifts. Uh, and he's going to basically make it just the opposite of that. It's going to become a curse rather than a blessing. Uh, and so no longer will it be a place where they receive God's gifts. Rather, it'll be a place where uh, they receive the wrath of God. So there is the sermon that Jeremiah has preached there in the temple, and it's been heard. And we get the reaction of various groups of people who hear Jeremiah. So we'll keep reading here in chapter 26, beginning at verse 7 now. The priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. And when Jeremiah had finished speaking, all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people. Then the priests and the prophets and all the people laid hold of him, saying, You shall die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, This house shall be like Shiloh, and this city shall be desolate without inhabitant? And all the people gathered around Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. When the officials of Judah heard these things, they came up from the king's house to the house of the Lord and took their seat in the entry of the new gate of the house of the Lord. Then the priests and the prophets said to the officials and to all the people, this man deserves the sentence of death because he has prophesied against this city as you have heard with your own ears. Then Jeremiah spoke to all the officials and all the people saying, the Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and this city, all the words you have heard. Now, therefore, mend your ways and your deeds and obey the voice of the Lord, your God, and the Lord will relent of the disaster that he has pronounced against you. But as for me, behold, I am in your hands. Do with me as seems good and right to you. Only know for certain that if you put me to death, you will bring innocent blood upon yourselves and upon the city and its inhabitants. For in truth, the Lord sent me to you to speak all these words in your ears. That's through verse 15 of Jeremiah chapter 26. So Pastor Vandercook, this next section here, I suppose really is, is two. You get the reaction of people who heard the sermon, and then there's a trial of sorts where you get the prosecuting attorneys bringing their case and Jeremiah bringing his defense. So let's, let's start with the opening reaction, verses 7 through 9. What's the reaction of the priests, the prophets, and the people when they hear Jeremiah's sermon? Well, they lay hands on him, which means that they, they capture him, basically, and, and hold him and arrest him, I suppose. And they basically tell him, hey, you're, you shall die. Um, and uh, the reason that he shall die is they, they say that, uh, he is, um, uh, that he's blaspheming, is what they accuse him of. So, um, but they, they Im uh, immediately pronounce that he is deserving of death, uh, brought to mind 
the I mean, there's lots of reactions you could point to that are very similar to this in the in the scriptures. But um, the one that popped into my head was uh, Stephen in Acts chapter seven, who is um, uh, at the end of his sermon. The people are uh, so enraged that they uh, that they stone him to death. Now that's not going to happen to Jeremiah here. Sorry to break. That. I mean, I guess I gave away the ending there, but. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but, you know, that happens to uh, Stephen is is stoned to death uh, for the same thing. So, yeah, it, you know, and the people's reaction is notable because there is no really refutation of anything that Jeremiah has actually said. Uh, there's nothing there's they don't they're not denying uh, really that that he's spoken the truth about them and their lack of. Uh, fidelity to the word of God. Uh, they're just upset because he's spoken. He was, well, cause he's being mean, you know? <laughs> so that's why they're mad. Uh, you know, they don't, they don't really have a good reason to be upset with Jeremiah other than that. This guy's been mean to us. You know, uh, he's saying things bad about us and about our city and everything else. So, uh, there really is no, um, no uh evidence <laughs> sure yeah i mean I, th- I think that's that's not a bad way of you know they're you're just mean jeremiah and, and certainly we've, <laughs> yeah. we've seen uh, a variety of people react against him already uh, to i mean to their uh, not defense but maybe as a way of trying to understand where they're coming from i do think what we were talking about earlier concerning the way they're looking at the temple you know oh look here's the temple we, we we're gonna be okay you do have these promises from God concerning the temple, concerning Jerusalem. These people are misusing those promises. They're they're using them maybe the way Paul would speak, you know, so that you know they want to keep sinning so that grace may abound in these places. And and Paul would say by no means, and so would Jeremiah. But there there is maybe a there's a a hint of the truth somewhere in the back of their minds that they're they're twisting, and and here they're saying Jeremiah, we don't like this. You're mean. You're gonna die. The other, the other place I think we could make comparison beside Stephen's trial is is Jesus' trial. Do you see some similarities there as well? Oh, certainly. Yeah, you know that they, um, uh, you know, especially whenever you see um, uh, Jeremiah's defense in there, uh, and he talks about, hey, if you you're not rejecting me, but you're rejecting the one who sent me, you know. Uh, because Jeremiah knows that he's speaking the word of the Lord. And he also says, hey, you're going to have innocent blood on your hands if you kill me, because mm-hmm. I haven't done anything wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you don't get Jesus saying those words at his trial, but you do get Pilate saying it, you know, that he declares Jesus to be innocent, washes his hands and says that I am innocent of this man's blood. And then the people of uh, the, the Jews cry out, um, his blood be on us and on our children, basically accepting the guilt, saying, fine, we'll take the guilt for his death. We don't care. Um, so yeah, you, you see a little bit of similarity there too, but yeah, to the point of, uh, them at least showing, um, a little bit of regard for the, the temple, again, a misguided regard for it. But, uh, you know, the fact is that, uh, blasphemy carried the penalty of death. Uh, that is, that is true. Uh, that's what the law of God says is that those who blaspheme against him are guilty of death. We can see that in, uh, in Deuteronomy, but, um, there is, uh, uh, so there's, there certainly is some truth to that, but again, it's, it's a misguided truth. Right. And in that misguided truth, they're going to keep accusing Jeremiah. He's on trial here. We're going to pick more of that up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron talking Jeremiah chapter 26 with pastor, pastor David Vandercook. We'll be right back. 
please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, June 30th. We're studying Jeremiah chapter 26, verses 1 to 24 with Pastor David Vandercook. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and Shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumel, Arkansas. Pastor Vandercook, prior to the break, we're talking about the trial that Jeremiah undergoes here. He's literally on trial. And we were talking in the break about the people, the various actors here. And it's hard to to know exactly what to make of this, but you see on several occasions that it is the priests and the prophets who are doing the accusing. The officials of Judah are the ones who are trying the case and going to render the verdict, as we will see. And then the people, you've got this crowd that sort of goes back and forth, it seems. I'm not sure exactly what to make of all of that, other than I think it is significant that the priests and the prophets, the ones that really should have known the word of God, they're the ones who are most vehemently prosecuting Jeremiah here. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely the case. Uh, they they should have, as you said, they should have known what the word of God says. They should have known what the people were um, guilty of. Um, they should have known that what Jeremiah was speaking was not at all out of line, uh, and that it was certainly in line with God's law, but they they didn't. Uh, they were completely um, against Jeremiah. Uh, now, what were their motives in that? Uh, we, we don't know exactly. Uh, you could probably draw some parallels, certainly to Jesus on trial, and he is most vehemently accused by the religious officials of his day. And we, we know that that was motivated primarily by jealousy. Uh, by the fact that Jesus was a threat to their authority and their and their power, and so there is a possibility that there's maybe a hint of that here, but it's it's certainly not explicitly there in the text. But yeah, you certainly do have the people that should be squarely behind Jeremiah and on his side are not, uh, because it, well, it just shows how corrupt the people of God have become, and part of the corruption of the people of God is due to the very poor leadership that they have. Mm, certainly. And we've seen Jeremiah call out those leaders on multiple occasions already in his book, and it's proving itself true here. In verses 12 through 15, Jeremiah, having heard what the prosecution has said about him, now has the chance to make his defense in this trial. How does Jeremiah defend himself in verses 12 through 15? Well, essentially says, I'm not the one you're mad at. Um, you know, if you want to be mad at somebody, well, then you need to have your argument with God because it's his word that I'm proclaiming to you. This is exactly the way that um, every prophet's authority and for that matter, every modern day pastor's authority should be framed is that uh, the authority only extends as far as the word of God goes. Uh, And so, so long as all that fills, um, all that comes out of Jeremiah's mouth, all that comes out of Jeremiah's mouth comes from the Lord then uh, the people 
don't have a beef with him. They have a beef with uh, the Lord and his word. Uh, so, so their argument is ultimately not against Jeremiah, but it's against the Lord. And Jeremiah, uh, you know, this is a very um, brave, uh, to say the least, statement that he makes. Hey, do with me what you want. You know, uh, you, you, can, you can kill me if you want to, but that's not going to solve your problem. Um, and, uh, and, and you're going to have innocent blood on your hands on top of that. Mm, yeah. I mean, I think that that statement that Jeremiah makes does stand out to me too, that I'm in your hands. And it, it seems to me that he can only make such a statement like that because he knows that he's actually in the Lord's hands as well, which I, I think, again, that, that stands in line with the prophets throughout the ages it, in what the defense that Jeremiah makes. And then that, that statement he makes, it brings to mind the way Stephen faces his martyrdom and, and, you know, going backwards, it brings to mind some of the events of Moses own life. And now he at multiple times will tell the people, look, your problem's not with me. It's with the Lord. And, and in each case, they're willing to receive the consequences for preaching the word faithfully because they know ultimately they're in the Lord's hands. Yeah, and uh, I think the yeah bringing up some of the the New Testament martyrs and the early church martyrs too, for that matter, it really echoes their uh, I, I guess they're echoing Jeremiah's attitude in that whole thing too, and that's that. Uh, well, if I if I die, fine, you know, I I'll, I'm with the Lord, um, you know, to live as Christ, to die as gain. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and then that too, then ends up heaping more judgment upon those who who would end up putting the martyr to death to to say and and in many cases in the martyrs you know it makes their persecutors even matter adding to that judgment that, that they receive and putting to death as as Jeremiah says you know this is innocent blood you mentioned the connection to Jesus trial there as well what's what's amazing and you you already spoiled the story for us pastor vandercook but <laughs> Jeremiah doesn't actually die here which and we'll talk about this because given the trajectory of the book of Jeremiah and how over and over again people just don't listen to him here we get a bit of the opposite. So let's let's keep going here in Jeremiah chapter 26. We're picking up now at verse 16. Then the officials and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, this man does not deserve the sentence of death, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. And certain of the elders of the land arose and spoke to all the assembled people, saying, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and said to all the people of Judah, thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he has had pronounced against them? But we are about to bring great disaster upon ourselves. So that was through verse 19, and you get the verdict and then a little bit of rationale for the verdict. So verse 16, you have the officials now acting as as judge and jury, and there are the people siding with them again in verse 16. We were talking about the, the various actors in this text, and it, it strikes me that now the people are on the side of the officials, not the priests and the prophets, whereas earlier back in verse seven, the people were on the side of the priests and prophets. So there seems to be some back and forth there, but just give us the, the verdict that's pronounced there in verse 16, Pastor Vandercook. Well, the verdict is he doesn't deserve to die. Uh, they, they decide that, well, he has spoken uh, to us the word of God. So basically they heard what Jeremiah said and they said, okay, I guess you're right. You know, uh, and some of it probably has to do with previous experience. I mean, the, uh, you know, Jeremiah, uh, is not a brand new prophet. This is not his first prophecy. And so they're, 
hearing him and they realize, oh yeah, well, Jeremiah has spoken the word of the Lord before and, you know, he hasn't, uh, we don't, we, we should trust what, what the word says, I guess, you know. Mm-hmm. So even though they don't like the word, they recognize the fact that Jeremiah speaks with the authority of God's word. Mm, right. And, and so then certain of the elders of the land speak up. So I guess maybe not everybody there, but some people, it seems they remember something similar. They bring up Micah of Morasheth. Tell us this example that they, they cite as part of their reasoning for the verdict. Well, yeah. And first of all, too, you know, you have the elders of, of, of Israel there. Um, you know, we talked about Josiah earlier. And there is uh, a little bit of that probably still hanging on while while we did talk about how a lot of what Josiah did was undone just in three months by his evil son. Uh, the fact is that the word of God does not return to him empty. And so uh, a little bit of his word is is still going to survive. Had Josiah not come and done that reform, perhaps Jeremiah doesn't live here. You know, but the fact is that the Lord did work through his word. Uh, during the reign of his father, Josiah. Uh, and so the people have at least that familiarity. But yeah, you get this uh, this this citation of Micah of Morasheth, and it is basic, basically a direct quotation from, uh, from Micah 3.12 uh, that came about 100 years earlier whenever uh, he was prophesying during the days of Hezekiah, who was the king of Judah. Um, Hezekiah was... Listed as a good king, but not not as good as Josiah, but but better than most. I guess that's kind of just a nice way of putting it. But uh, he was he was considered uh, for doing. He was considered to have done good in the eyes of the Lord, uh, as the phrase typically goes in uh, in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. So he he did what was right. He did what was good, um, and he. Um, Micah of Morasheth brought a similar message to what Jeremiah brings, and Hezekiah did spare his life. Uh, and so, kind of like how we have the Supreme Court today that cites preceding judgments, precedents uh, to make their judgments, we have this kind of same thing happen with the officials of Judah here, as they're saying, wait a second, we had a really similar situation happen back 100 years ago. Um, we should probably apply the same thing that we did then. Yeah, and I think the the point that you made about that the word of God does not return empty is a is a very important one, particularly in a book like Jeremiah. We've we've noted many times on this program as we've been going through the book of Jeremiah that there is a lot of law, a lot of condemnation, and over and over again, Jeremiah himself talks about how you're not listening, you haven't listened in the past, you're not listening to me. And and here at least there's at least a glimmer that there are some that that are listening and and at least are willing to be rational in in their approach and as you said you know i mean they're citing previous cases look at what hezekiah did how he treated micah the prophet and and let's treat jeremiah similarly and i think there's there's a great comfort hopefully to jeremiah in that and then certainly for us reading it today that when we are given this word to preach that we're pretty sure people aren't going to like and god says don't hold it back that people do listen. There, there are those who will listen and that no matter how it's received, that the Lord is at work doing what he intends with that word. That should, I think, still bring us comfort today. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. You know, on all that, all that aside, it is kind of remarkable. They end up not killing Jeremiah yes. though, you know, right. cause he, uh, he was, it was certainly in the cards there, but it does again, kind of fulfill, um, 
what what the Lord had promised Jeremiah way back at the beginning, Jeremiah 119, they will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. So, uh, you know, his time had not yet come. I think you could compare that, too, to uh, uh, Jesus who escapes from the temple whenever the Jews are picking up stones to stone him. Somehow he escapes at that moment, you know, and uh, Jeremiah likewise here. It's not time yet. His time will come, but not yet. Right, right. Yeah, I think, and, and St. Paul similarly will escape persecution at, at various times and, and survive even being stoned. And so, the, yeah, the Lord continues to make use of Jeremiah and his preaching here. Now, in the end of the chapter, we get an account of another prophet, another faithful prophet, in fact. We've heard a lot about of false prophets during the time of Jeremiah, but there is at least one other faithful one, a man by the name of Uriah, and that is how the, our chapter concludes today. So we're picking up now at verse 20 in Jeremiah 26. There was another man who prophesied in the name of the Lord, Uriah, the son of Shemaiah from Kiriath-Jerim. He prophesied against this city and against this land in words like those of Jeremiah. And when King Jehoiakim, with all his warriors and all the officials, heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. But when Uriah heard of it, he was afraid and fled and escaped to Egypt. Then King Jehoiakim sent to Egypt certain men, Elnathan the son of Akbar, and others with him. And they took Uriah from Egypt and brought him to King Jehoiakim, who struck him down with a sword and dumped his dead body into the burial place of the common people. But the hand of Ahiakam, the son of Shaphan, was with Jeremiah, so that he was not given over to the people to be put to death. That is the rest of our text for today there in Jeremiah 26, all the way through the end of the chapter. So, Pastor Vandergrick, tell us a little bit about this Uriah, son of Shemaiah, from Kiriath-Jerim. Yeah, it's an interesting contrast to the verses we just read, that you have one prophet who's spared, and then another one who preaches basically the same thing the text tells us. Uh, and he ends up dying. Uh, and in fact, uh, somewhat, it's not just that he was grabbed and put on trial. He was actually extradited from Egypt and then brought back and then executed. And then he was uh, buried, as a, buried as a commoner. So, I mean, uh, treated, you know, the prophets are treated shamefully, uh, you know, Jesus said, and, uh, and, he cer- and he certainly was here. So, yeah, you have Uriah, who doesn't meet the same fate as Jeremiah. Uh, and it's probably a helpful reminder uh, that it's, it's not all good for the prophets. Uh, not, have, <laughs> not that we need to be reminded of that, I guess. But, I mean, the fact is it brings us back to the reality that the, uh, the Jews and, and their officials were so often dead set against the word of God to the point of, uh, of these irrational assassinations that they would make. Yeah, I mean, in, in this case of Uriah, who, as far as I know, is is not mentioned elsewhere in the scriptures. This this case of Uriah is a rather stark case, as as you said. Not only does do they want to put him to death, but when he actually flees, they go and and get him. You know, the term extradited, I think, works quite well. It's, it, as you mentioned at the very beginning, with the the context, at this time the people of Judah are paying tribute to Egypt and and Pharaoh Necho, and, and so there would have maybe been some kind of an agreement for that so that they would be able to get this guy back from Egypt. And they go to that great length to do that. I mean, shows you all the while you've got these officials who have been very rational and logical, I would say, in their treatment of Jeremiah. Even if they don't believe everything that he's preached, they're willing to give him you know, the benefit of the doubt. On the other hand, here you have this one man who's preached the exact same thing 
And King Jehoiakim, who's, who's behind all of this, spares no expense to go after him. I think is it is a reminder that, yes, there is a group of people who are willing to listen to the word of the Lord, but by and large, the things that Jeremiah has been preaching all along still hold true. The people don't want to hear the word of God and, in fact, are willing to go to great lengths to silence that preaching. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it is. It is really kind of uh, amazing that they, again, as as we've said, they they go to those those great lengths to to stifle the word of God. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think that that certainly speaks to just the well. I've used the word rational or logical previously, but the irrationality of unbelief. I mean, what what happens in verses sixteen and nineteen in this verdict that pronounced like that makes sense. But now suddenly this preaching of Uriah and the reaction to that, that, that just doesn't make sense. I mean, was it, was it really that bad that you needed to chase him down into Egypt and put him to death when you let Jeremiah live? I mean, it's just the, the links that, that unbelief will go to, to silence the word of God. You see a picture of it here and it's, it's very astounding, I think. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. Yeah. And, and I think irrational describes it well. Uh, you know, we were talking earlier about the stoning of Stephen, and it was kind of a similar thing there where they're, you know, they're they're shouting and plugging their ears because they can't stand to hear what he's saying. Well, it's not like he's saying anything that's really that. I mean, he's speaking the gospel, <laughs> you know, and they're they're that upset about it. And so, yeah, you get to the point where it is irrational, where they have no real reason to be this upset, but they just are. Hmm. Uh, and so that's that's what becomes of them. Yeah, I mean, and, and the they're same, just consumed by that rage, right? And I, I would say the same is true of the of the opponents of Jesus and the Gospels. You know, you see a similar sort of rage, where particularly in Mark, that was the one we just got done studying here on Sharper Iron. It's already by chapter three that they're ready to kill Jesus, and that was because he had healed a man on the Sabbath. Of, of all the things that you want to kill somebody for, that he healed a man. That's that's why you want to kill him. I mean, you just see how how unbelief is irrational. It, it wants to silence any opposition that would try to call it to repentance. You know I mean? And that is the, I mean that to go back to what we were saying earlier about the do not hold back a word. That's why we might be afraid because, because we know the irrationality of unbelief. We know that what happens to Uriah could happen to any faithful preacher. Uh, and, and yet we also know that the faithful preachers, they are in the Lord's hands. They're doing the Lord's work. Now uh, we should, we should pay attention Especially to and and you'll have to forgive me for for my Hebrew pronunciation because I I know it wasn't the best this time. But you <laughs> you get a lot of these names here at the end of the of the chapter, and some of them will come up again. Uh, you know, El Elnathan, son of Akbar, he's going to come up again in chapter thirty six, um, and so is some of these other names, even like the son of. So particularly in verse twenty four, Pastor Vandercook, the hand of Ahiakim, the son of Shaphan. Tell us a little bit about him and some of the connections that we can make and the way that he protects Jeremiah here. Yeah, Ahikam is, or maybe you said it right. I, I don't, don't know. know. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> but uh, yeah, he's the son of Shaphan, who was a, a trusted official of King Josiah. Um, Ahikam was among those after, you know, we talked about Josiah earlier again, but uh, uh, Josiah, whenever the book of the law was discovered, there was a, a group that was sent, and among that group was Hilkiah the high priest, and Ahikam was also sent to be uh, to go to Holda the priestess, uh, and there uh, they are you know, prophetess, not priestess. The prophetess uh, who was um, 
was giving them some guidance on basically what to do with this with this book of the law that they discovered, what to do with this information. Uh, and so what that reveals to us or shows us is that Ahikam is among those who were faithful uh, to the Lord and his word. Uh, you know, a, a trusted official um, of a trusted official son of King Josiah, but also uh, a trusted official in his own right uh, who was sent to do that. And um, he he becomes a um, um, a friend, a supporter of Jeremiah, uh, and and protects him from what happened. So it's possible that that's one of the reasons that he did not meet a similar fate to Uriah is that he had uh, had somebody there that was kind of uh, uh, given by the Lord to protect him a little bit. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm reminded a little bit of again of Saint Paul in the way that you know there are various times where he receives protection from say a government official. It's usually a, a Roman government government official who maybe you know, wonders what's going on here in this squabble among the Jews is what the Romans think. But again, that the Lord would use those people in their office to protect his people, I think you you see happening here. One of the, the commentaries that I read mentioned that this uh, Shaphan, Ahikam, you're, you're right, I was adding a, a syllable, Ahikam, the son of Shaphan. Shaphan is is the secretary that of Josiah's reforms or the scribe of his reforms. And, and he's got a couple other sons that will show up elsewhere in the book of Jeremiah who also protect him. So uh, maybe there's kind of a family connection that, that Jeremiah is connected to, to Shaphan and, and to his family. And so through those faithful people, the Lord does protect his prophet and, and hereby sparing the life of Jeremiah, at least for now. I mean, we know that, that Jeremiah will eventually die probably in the land of Egypt, but that's that's coming later in the book. Pastor Vanderkirk, we got about five minutes here on the morning. As we reflect on this text, let's make some connections to the catechism. First to the the first commandment, which seems obvious enough, but but what does this text have to say about the first commandment and, and the way we would think about that for our lives as Christians as well? Well, sure. Yeah, we, we kind of covered some of that ground earlier, but uh, you know, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods. Um, God gives us all kinds of gifts, uh, and all the gifts that God gives are good. But all the gifts that God gives us, all those good gifts can also be just as easily turned into idols. Uh, whenever we start to put our trust into them rather than into the giver of the gift. Uh, and so that's what you have happening with the people of Judah is that they were given Jerusalem. They were given the temple as the place where God would come to meet them, the place where God would give them the gift of the, for, of the forgiveness of sins. But what they do is they turn Jerusalem and they turn the temple into a sort of good luck charm. As long as we have the temple, as long as we have Jerusalem, then no evil shall befall us. Now, they should have noticed by now that that's not true uh, because they've had plenty of evil that has befallen them. But they still have this, this kind of misguided pride in the fact that they still have hold of these things, or at least they think they have hold of them. And therefore, uh, they believe that that's proof that God is pleased with them uh, when, in fact, uh, he's not. Uh, and so they've, they've kind of turned those things into their idols, uh, even though God gave them to them as good gifts. You also say there's a connection we can make to the fifth chief part of the catechism, confession or the office of the keys. What What's the connection between Jeremiah 26 and that part of the catechism? Well, the, the preaching of the word is always meant to bring about repentance and then, of course, in turn, the forgiveness of sins. And that's what Jeremiah's preaching is there to do. Uh, it's there to bring about repentance. It's clear that that's what's desired 
uh, the Lord says that, you know, who knows, maybe the people will change their ways. Maybe, and then I can relent of this disaster I'm going to bring. And Jeremiah repeats that to the people in his defense. Hey, if you, if you only listen, you don't know what will happen. Maybe, it'll, maybe the Lord will relent. Uh, so there's always that hope. That's always the goal of preaching. That's always the goal of the exercise of the office of the keys. You know, in the office of the keys, we, we confess that, um, that when the pastor, uh, uh, that, that, that the Lord gives that authority to his pastors or through the church, of course, but through the church, and then the church in turn entrusts those keys to the pastors to forgive the sins of repentant sinners, but to withhold forgiveness from the unrepentant as long as they do not repent. The point of withholding that forgiveness, though, is not to bring terror and dread upon the unrepentant. It's that it's in the hope that those who are unrepentant will eventually come around, will eventually recognize and confess, yes, Lord, you're right, I am a sinner. And so that's what is desired of the people of Jerusalem and of Judah here, is that they will actually see their sin and do that. Now, unfortunately, there while we do get the people who do not, um, you know, the people in the end, Jeremiah does not end up getting put to death, being put to death here. But if you actually look at the text, there really, there is not a full repentance of the people here necessarily. We don't have the people actually listening to the word of God and, uh, and changing uh, their ways and, and turning and obeying God's law all of a sudden. So, you know, that that does not that unfortunately does not happen here in this chapter of Jeremiah. There is not a full repentance here of the people. Mm, yeah, but but the word is preached in the hopes that they will repent, and we do know that where the word of God is preached, He is at work, and so we stand in the shoes of Jeremiah and continue to not hold back a word, but continue to preach what God has given us—the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Pastor David Vandercook is the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and Shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumel, Arkansas, helping us today with Jeremiah chapter 26, verses 1 to 24. Pastor Vandercook, thanks for being our guest today. Good to be here. Thanks. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Jeremiah, any comments on this series, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the app to record up to a 60-second message with the open mic feature. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.